0: You can stay parked in John 21. That's about all we'll be in. Maybe I might have you move over to Luke 5, but all right. If we're ready, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for our bold access to your throne room that we enjoy because of the grace in Christ in which we stand. And as we gather here this morning as your children, we ask, Father, that you would meet with us and that you would portion out to us those things that our souls need to hear. And may we leave here having been satisfied, each and every one of us, in our spiritual hunger. You alone, Father, know the the state, the condition of every heart. You know the affairs that may have unsettled your people the concerns, you know, the dimness of our eyes and how desperately we need today to have our spirits warmed by your word. So we ask that you would turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we might look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world would grow strangely dim. May there be nothing that impedes your spirit from doing his work, for we do know that apart from you, we can accomplish absolutely nothing. Even though we might toil all night, our nets would be empty. And now I ask that my words would be empowered, that all of our thoughts would be focused, and no distractions would prevent us from exalting Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, today we begin our discussion of the Lord's seventh. Seven? Does that tell you something right there? going to be special. This is his seventh post-resurrection appearance. And it was before seven disciples, in the presence of seven disciples. So must be special. This is now his first appearance in the northern province of Israel known as Galilee. Why were his disciples in Galilee? Well, why do you think? That's where they're from. All of them were from Galilee except one. Judas Iscariot was from the southern province of Judea. And now that the feasts were over, the feast of Passover, the week-long feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of 1st roots, they were likely very eager and very ready to get out of their seclusion in Jerusalem. By the way, don't you think it must have startled them that nobody, either Roman or Jew, was scouring the city looking for them? After all, they had been accused of stealing the Lord's body. So after a week or so, it must have amazed them. Why is nobody coming after us, looking for us to arrest us? So after a week, you know, we know they were there in Jerusalem at least a week because the Sunday following Resurrection Sunday is when he appeared to Thomas. Well, all of them, but including Thomas. So after a week, maybe that next Monday, they would have realized that it was safe to leave. So that's probably when they left. If I was to guess, I'd say they left on Monday or Tuesday after the Sunday in which he appeared to Thomas or for the sake of Thomas. Now another reason for them to have to, return to their hometown province of Galilee was to obey the Lord. On the night of his arrest, after to- having told them that he would be smitten. And when he was smitten, all the sheep would scatter from him, fulfilling, of course, Zechariah 13, 7. He had then said these words. He had said, But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Mark 14, 28. Now, in case they had forgotten those words in all of the emotional upheaval that they then went through when he was betrayed and arrested and then crucified and buried and everything... They were reminded of that meet me in Galilee message through the women. Now, remember, the women were told to relay that message to the disciples, first of all, by the tomb shelf angel, we called him. And then they were also reminded of that message, or told that message to give to the disciples by Jesus himself when he, afer- when he first appeared to those women, uh, Matthew twenty-eight ten. Now, John is the only gospel writer to report for us this seventh post-resurrection appearance of christ this is now his third appearance before his men collectively john makes sure to tell us that in verse 14 he says in verse 14 this is now the third time since jesus showed himself to his disciples the first time of course was on resurrection sunday evening when he appeared to 10 of his apostles and many disciples including those two on the road to emmaus and a lot of women but who was missing that first sunday night Thomas. so the next sunday night that was his second appearance to his collective men he appeared to we know 11 of his apostles we don't know if any of the others were there that night but now this is the third appearance collectively before his men and it is before seven of them john 21 presents for us a very interesting way of portraying the three ministry roles that the church is to have in the world between the time of the Lord's ascension and his return. It's a very organized chapter. It's easy to divide. First of all, as we're going to see today in the events of verses 1 to 14, that's our passage for this morning, Christians, and the church here is represented by the number 7. Now I'll talk about that later. But Christians are to be in this church age fishers of men we're to be evangelists we're out to go out into the world and cast our nets into the deep sea of this world and catch fish actually men and women and, and young people children that's the title for this lesson we're to be fishers of men then we are also to be shepherds over the flock that God has entrusted each and every one of us to care for. Everyone in this room has a flock, whether it's children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, Sunday school class, somebody, everybody has a flock. Um, and it could be little lambs that you're entrusted to be a shepherd over, it could be young sheep, middle aged sheep, or old sheep, right? <laughs> but we're all shepherds. And then, and that's in the next section in John 21. We're to be fishers of of men, shepherds of sheep, and then we're to be, each and every one of us individually, we're to be disciples, we're to be learners and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's in the last half of this chapter. So John 21 is all about three specific ministry roles for those who make up the church, fishers of men, evangelists, shepherds, and disciples. John 21 also relays for us the only post-resurrection miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? This, I mean, other than what he did with his body, you definitely have to admit that coming out alive from a tomb when you're dead—that's a miracle, right? And vanishing and 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 suddenly appearing and um, ascending into heaven. So, other than miracles that he performed with his own body, this is the only normal miracle that's kind of an oxymoron isn't it how can you have a normal miracle but this is the only post-resurrection miracle that we have and of course it is the great catch of fish that the disciples had on the uh, lake of galilee sea of galilee also john 21 gives to us the account of simon peter's restoration to the apostleship now we know that when the lord in his third post-resurrection appearance appeared privately to Peter that was probably when Peter was restored in his fellowship with the Lord I'm sure that that was the time he he knew that the Lord forgave him for his three denials but now in John 21 we're going to see where he's restored in his commission as an apostle okay and uh, if we didn't have this in John 21 we might question why Peter is so you know after his sinful denials why he is so prominent in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts and as a a leader in the early church. And then finally, in verses 22 and 23, old John, now by the time John wrote his gospel, he was an old man. Um, And he finally, in those two verses, 22 and 23, he set straight a rumor that had been spreading about him among believers in the first century church. That rumor was that John would not die before the Lord returned. So he sets that rumor straight by recording the exact words that Jesus spoke in that conversation that started the rumor. All right? So that's a quick summary of the whole chapter 21. Let's now read the first 14 verses. Would you look with me at John 21, starting at verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. If you count, that's seven. Verse 3, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. Kind of funny way to say it, isn't it? I go (laughs) a-fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, children, have ye any meat? They answered him, no. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and who would that be? John himself, saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Okay, let's begin by looking at the setting for this seventh recorded resurrection appearance, post-resurrection appearance. And as I already mentioned, we know it's in Galilee. But more specifically, it was at the Sea of Tiberias, which is just the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Lake of Gennesaret over in Luke 5. It had several names. It even had another name in the Old Testament. But that that was a beautiful sea. It's not really a sea, it's a lake, if you've ever been there, and I know some of you have. It's a beautiful lake. Um, But they call it a sea because it's pretty big and it's deep. But oh me, oh my, if that lake could talk, if it could speak to us, it could tell us some of the most wonderful stories about the Master. This is where the first fishing miracle took place, and that one... Luke 5, occurred early in the Lord's Galilean ministry. Actually, it was his third miracle. There's a lot of threes in this story. (laughs) But his third miracle was that great fish catch on the Sea of Galilee, the one that broke the nets. And there were so many fish that it caused two boats to begin to sink. It was at that time that Jesus called out four of his men to be followers of him. And those four were Peter and his brother, Andrew, and James and his brother, John. He called them out to be fishers of men. You can read about that in Matthew 4:19, which is a parallel passage to Luke 5. And what did they do when they were called out? After that great, you know, they had been also out all night fishing and had caught nothing. And he told them to relaunch, go back out and cast your nets. And then they had so many, the nets broke and the, shi- the ships began to sink. What did the men do after he called them to be fishers of men? We are told that they forsook all and followed him. They left their families, they left their friends, they left their community and their fishing boats and they followed him. They began to be his disciples. And now it's some three years later and seven of his men, all Galileans, are once again at the very place that he had called four of them to ministry with him. Now, the Sea of Galilee was where some of the Lord's mightiest works took place, including these two great fishing miracles, that first one early in his ministry and this last one, this this one and only post-resurrection miracle. This is also where Jesus walked on water and where he enabled Peter to also walk on water, at least for a little while. It was where in another storm, he had actually calmed the the waters and the, and the wind with what? Just the word of his mouth, peace be still. This is where he provided payment of the tribute money out of the mouth of a fish that he sent Peter to catch. It was on the banks of this lake that he fed a multitude of 5,000 men with two fish and five loaves of bread. And we know the men had their wives and children with them, so it could have been as many as 15,000 people, with just two fish and five barley loaves. On high ground, on one side of this lake, he cast a legion of devils out of... There you go. You know I'm going to say it. The crude, rude dude in the nude. <laughs> I just have to always say that when we get to the gathering demoniac. The crude, rude dude in the nude. And remember, those uh, demons went into a a herd of pigs. The swine cast themselves down into the sea. In towns upon this beautiful lake, such as Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, he had performed many, many marvelous healing miracles. And then sitting in a boat on this lake, pushed out a little bit from the shore, he delivered the Mystery Kingdom parables of Matthew 13, there was no place on planet earth that had been as privileged, as blessed and as privileged to see and hear as much from the Son of God as this district around the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. Just being there again, now it's been a long time since the disciples had been there, just being there would remind them of the wisdom and the love and the power that the Lord had displayed there in those earlier days. This post-resurrection account is really the most like the old scenes, you know, before the crucifixion and the passion and the resurrection. There is a warm naturalness to this scene, isn't there? As we read through it, we've got fishermen again and nets and boats and the Sea of Galilee and the fish and the fire. It just kind of transports us back to the early time of the Lord's earthly ministry. Now, it's roughly guessed that the timing of this event was somewhere between probably the 10th and the 40th day of the Lord's um, post-resurrection time on earth. We know it has to be before the 40th day, because on the 40th day, he ascended back to heaven. I would guess, more specifically, since he has four more post-resurrection appearances, I would guess that it was probably somewhere between the 10th and the 20th day of his 40 days on earth after his resurrection. Not that that matters. All 11 of the apostles would have been back in Galilee in obedience to him saying he would meet them there. But for some reason, we don't know where the other four are on this occasion. For some reason, there's only seven of them involved in this incident. And I think it was all intentionally, you know, so that they could picture the church as we'll talk about. But we are told the identity of only five of these men, five of the seven. And they are starting with who? Simon Peter. But isn't it amazing that suddenly, who's in second place here on the list? Thomas, also called Didymus. You know, every other list of the apostles has Thomas down further. All of a sudden, he's up higher. That's very interesting. How these these are the two guys who had fallen, one to denials and the other one to disbelief, and yet they are graciously listed at the head of this list here. Again, I think that displays to us God's grace, doesn't it? And then there was also Nathanael of Cana in Galilee. Now, just the mention of Cana reminds us of the Lord's first miracle. His very first miracle took place in Cana in Galilee. And what was that miracle? Turning the water into wine. That was a creative miracle. I mean, he didn't have any grapes or seeds or anything. He just made wine from water. Now, think about some of the comparisons between the first miracle and the last miracle. Okay? Because that's what we've got now, is the very last miracle, normal miracle. (laughs) The first miracle involved a lack of wine. The last miracle involves a lack of fish. One was performed after servants obeyed the Lord's command, fill the water pots. The other one was performed after servants obeyed the command, cast the nets. There was a bountiful supply in both. Wine filled the pots to the brim, and fish filled the net to the brim. Also, a specific number is mentioned in both the first and the last miracle. There were six water pots full of wine and there were 153 fish. Now, what's the significance of all that? I don't know. (laughs) But it's fun to do that. (laughs) I love to do comparisons, contrasts and comparison. Okay, also along with Simon Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel were the sons of Zebedee. Who would they be? Who are they? John and James. James was older. James and John, I should say it. Um, Zebedee, their father, was a professional fisherman. And they, like him, were also professional fishermen. And then two other disciples who, for some reason, John doesn't name. We don't know who those other two disciples were in this incident out there in the boat. Why doesn't John tell us their names? I don't know. Maybe it's so... Like, you know, when we didn't know who Cleopas' traveling companion was on the road to Emmaus, and like we don't know who Thomas' twin was, maybe it's so that you and I can take their place in the boat. But most Bible commentators say that, that they think they would have been Andrew, Peter's brother, who was also a fisherman by trade, and the other one would have been Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew. He was from nearby Bethsaida, and he was a good friend of Philip. So if we were going to guess, we'd probably say the other two were Andrew and Philip. The foremost character of John chapter 21, other than the Lord, is who? Peter. Peter. He is the one in verse 3 who decides he's going (laughs) a-fishing. And then the others all leap in on that one. The others follow him. He's the one in verse 7 who leaps out of the boat. And uh, then in verse 7, he's the one who draws the net of fish to the land after it's been brought onto the beach. And then in the two narrative conversations that follow verse 14, the rest of the chapter, we find that Peter is the central focus. The Lord has conversations, and they're all with Peter. So Peter's the central character here. Now the Lord, you know, had not set a date for his meeting with his men in Galilee. So here we find at least seven of them on this particular day waiting close to the sea, waiting for him. Maybe they had already waited half a week or a whole week already. We don't know how long they'd been waiting. They had no idea when he might appear. You know, neither did they know he'd only be around for 40 days. They didn't know that either. And I think that there is probably significance in the Lord's sudden appearances before his people during those 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. You know, when he'd suddenly appear and there he'd be in their midst. And they never knew when they could, would expect him, right? He'd done that to quite, quite a few of them on now seven occasions. There he just all of a sudden was. One thing that the disciples surely learned or discovered during those 40 days was that they had to stay on alert because they never knew when the master would appear. That period of time, you see, was sort of like a mini preview of the way that things have been for believers, for you and I, throughout the church age, right? We too do not know when the Lord might suddenly appear for us individually like he did with Mary and like he did with Peter and like he would do with his brother James later. Um, or collectively. Now, when he appears for us individually, that's when, that's our homegoing. When he appears for us collectively, that's going to be the rapture of the church. So since we don't know when he's going to suddenly appear for us, we need to be always watchful so that we won't be caught ashamed like Peter was, so we won't be caught disbelieving as Thomas was, So we won't be caught slow of heart to learn what the scripture has to say as the two on the road to Emmaus were and not redeeming our time wisely. Not occupying till he come. Which is kind of what maybe these guys were doing when they went a-fishing. All right? Now Peter. Peter was a born fisherman. First of all, a fisherman for fish and then a fisherman for men. But he loved to fish. And it had been a while since he had done some serious net fishing on the beautiful sea that he loved so much. The only time we know he fished since he began to follow Jesus was when the Lord told him to go fishing so that he could, you know, catch the fish that had the tax tribute money in his mouth. And that was not net fishing. That was pole fishing. Different, okay? So Peter surely missed the feel of the rolling boat on the graceful lake and the soft sea breeze in his face and, of course, the thrill of a good catch. It was difficult to resist the old instinct of the fisherman that arose in the hearts of all these Galilean apostles. Furthermore, as we well know, Peter wasn't exactly the kind of guy to wait around twiddling his thumbs, was he? He was action-oriented. So he decided he'd waited long enough he was going to go a-fishing. And when he expressed his intent, the others immediately chimed in. We also go with thee. They jumped in the boat with him, I could say. And once they verbalized their desire, they wasted no time at all. It says they immediately went into a boat. Now, this boat might have been one that Peter had left behind when he forsook all to go and follow the Lord, or one of the boats of Zebedee, Zebedee, the father fisherman of James and John. It must have been late in the day because dragnet fishing is done at night when the fish come up to the warmer waters at the surface. You know, so this was, and we know it says that they were out fishing all night. So this is later in the day. This is sometime in mid-spring, probably early May, based on Passover and everything. And this is a perfect time to go fishing on the Sea of Galilee. John tells us they immediately got into a boat, which pulled behind it. Look at verse 8. The boat they got in, now don't think of a big ship, okay? It's not a very big craft. But the boat they got in pulled behind it a little boat, which is called a skiff, S-K-I-F-F. And the skiff was used to bring the catch of fish into into the shore where the water was shallow, more shallow, you know? The bigger boat couldn't get... the shore so they pulled a little boat behind so they could drag the the net full of fish to the shore now why do you think that the lord called so many fishermen to be his apostles a good many of the original 12 were fishermen more fishermen than any other trade i mean we had a tax collector right and we had a zealot simon whatever he did for a living (laughs) Um, and i'm not sure what some of the other ones but many of them were fishermen why do you think he didn't call out carpenters or or some other trade, to be his apostles. Well, it is likely because their trade, their occupation, so symbolized what he wanted them to do for him as fishers of men. It takes courage to be a professional fisherman. You know, these weren't just, that's not, they're just their little um, hobby, pastime. They were professional, that's how they made their living. They were professional fishermen. And it takes courage for the Lord's followers to be willing to go out into the deep and dangerous seas of this world to cast out his gospel net and catch fish for him. Fishermen are also dedicated, and they're dedicated to one thing. And what is that one thing? Catching fish. They are single-mindedly focused on catching fish. And they are not very easily distracted from that task. I know. I'm not married to a professional fisherman. But I am married to a guy who loves to fish. And when I go out in the boat with him, which isn't very often, I'm not allowed to talk. I mean, there goes the fellowship part of it, you know. I'm not allowed to wiggle. I might scare the fish away, you know. And and he is single-mindedly focused on catching a fish. Fishermen are steadfast, and they're patient. Why is that the only time Frank is patient? (laughs) But they have to be patient, don't they? And they do not quit easily. Particularly in dragnet fishing, they must work together in casting out the net. Those nets are heavy. They have to work together in casting the net out, and they have to work together Bringing the nets in, especially when those nets are full of fish and seaweed and other sea creatures. Also, professional fishermen need to take orders quickly since hesitation can cause the loss of the fish. And they are skilled in using their equipment, just as the Lord wants his followers to be skilled in using God's word as our net. Our net is God's word. It's the gospel message to, to haul in their, our catch. And dragnet fishermen, I like this part, they rejoice together in the catch. Because they all had to work together, they all rejoice together. Each of them had a part, and no one man therefore takes the glory. Isn't that a beautiful part of it? So, now, Bible scholars and students of Scripture are divided about whether or not it was wrong for these men to have gone fishing. On this particular occasion, those who say it was wrong for them to have done so base primarily their conclusion on the Lord's words to at least four of these men Peter and Andrew and John and James in that earlier fishing miracle in Luke 5 when he told them, From henceforth thou shalt catch men. And in obedience, it says, they brought their ships of the land and they forsook all and followed him so people with this view say that it was wrong for these men to return to fishing since jesus said from henceforth you know you're fish for men so instead they should have been as they're waiting for the lord to appear to them uh, they should have been telling everybody they could that jesus was alive from the dead people in galilee knew all about jesus he had been there for a long time and so they should have been telling everyone, not, you know, redeeming their time wisely, occupying till he came. Uh, <laughs> but I have to say that they probably did tell their families and their friends and everyone they knew. And they would have known a lot of people in that vicinity. because They were all from there. I, I think they were telling people that Jesus was alive from the dead. And that's why there were 500 gathered in the next post-resurrection appearance of Jesus when he meets with these guys, and 500 more on a Galilean mountain. Well, others say that there is no fault in what these men did while they waited for the Lord's appearance. After all, they weren't being idle, were they? They were being industrious. They weren't being lazy. Now that they were not traveling with Jesus anymore, um, perhaps they needed some income. It was not like as if Matthew, I mean, this would be different, would it? If Matthew had gone back to being a tax collector, or Simon had gone back to being a zealot, it's not wrong to occupy your hands and make a living while you're waiting. And Jesus didn't rep- reprimand them, did he? Well, at least not directly. But do you think Peter prayed about it first before he just said, "I'm going fishing?" You think the other disciples prayed about it first? You know, this kind of all reminds me when the Lord asked them to watch and pray with him while he went further into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And what did they do? They all fell asleep. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleeping, is there? No, we need sleep. There's nothing wrong with sleeping, and there's nothing wrong with fishing. But neither one of those activities was done in direct obedience to what Jesus had told them to do on those two occasions. He had called these guys to a higher calling, hadn't he? And did he not teach them something by keeping the fish out of the nets all night long and not appearing to them until the morning on the shore? Is there maybe not a hidden lesson in that that might tell us something? I don't know. You know, I cannot dogmatically say whether it was right or wrong for these men to have gone fishing. And I don't think anybody can say with absolute conviction. But it would seem that there are some scriptural clues that tell us this wasn't exactly the perfect will of Christ for these men at this time. But as always, what was the Lord able to do? He used it for his glory and for their edification and also for our edification. We learn from this as well, this whole episode here. Now, the result of what should have been, because of the time of year and the conditions and everything, the result of what should have been an ideal fishing expedition is simply stated, and that night they caught nothing, not one single fish. They needed to learn a spiritual lesson that in the energy of their own flesh, apart from Christ, they could do, what does it say in John 15, 5? They could do nothing. Without him, their labor would always prove fruitless, or we could say fishless. (laughs) Now, as disappointing as it must have been, for these men to have toiled all night, and that's hard work, you know, throwing that net in and pulling it out. and As disappointing as it must have been, um, <clears throat> to catch nothing, it was an arrangement that was controlled. It was orchestrated by one who is far too wise to make a mistake and far too loving to be unkind. You see, if they had been successful that night in their own efforts, it may have been more difficult for them to give up their profession entirely. A Christian's failures can be a good thing. If you look back over your life and maybe you haven't succeeded in some areas and now you realize that that turned out to be a good thing. God can use our failures to close paths that we we may have chosen too impetuously or without prayer without the Spirit's leading, or which we may have tried to accomplish in our own strength. He may use failure to focus our hearts off things of this world and increase our appetite for heavenly things. And he uses failure to teach us to trust in his provision and in his timing, doesn't he? Yes, rather than our own. So the disappointed and tired disciples And after a whole night of fishing, we're now pulling for shore, rowing, you know, in the boats and pulling the little one behind them. And then in the gray light of the early dawn, they beheld a figure on the shore. Now, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the mist on the sea at that time of day or if it was the distance. It says there are 200 cubits, which is 100 yards. That's about equal to a football field away from the shore. Or maybe because he purposely altered his appearance like he had done before, but for whatever reason, they did not realize that the man standing there was the Lord. Even when he called out to them and said, Children, have ye any meat? They still didn't recognize his voice. Um, and that may be because they were at a distance too. I don't know. Now the word children, that's not the same Greek word that he used in John 13:33, which was the word technia, which is a term of endearment. You know, my dear little children. This is the word pedia which could be translated as lads or guys. This is just like a, a fisherman asking another fisherman, you know, after the fishing expedition. My husband likes to do this. So we go to the beach. We walk up and down the beach and he likes to ask people that are fishing, hey, did you catch anything? So that's what the Lord is doing. He's saying, hey, guys, lads, did you catch anything? Catch any fish, any meat. And uh, do you think he asked that question because he didn't know the answer? (laughs) Who do you think prevented the fish from getting in their nets? (laughs) Of course, he controlled the fish, so he knew the answer. Now, in case you are not married to a fisherman, let me tell you that catching nothing (laughs) does not exactly put a man in good spirits. And doesn't exactly put him in a talkative mood either. So these guys answered what? No. No. That was it. No. Catch anything? No. We don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Yet it was what the Lord needed to hear them confess so that he could then give them his wise counsel, teach them some important truths about being fishers of men, and then perform his one and only post-resurrection miracle. So he called out a command which he then followed with a promise. His command, cast the net on the right side of the ship. What's the promise? And ye shall find. Now, there must have been some suspicion in that moment when he said that in their minds that it might be the Lord. I mean, the confident authority was definitely there, even if they did not recognize his voice. All of them must have thought, or not all of them, but at least four of them must have thought about the last time something like this had happened, when it was indeed the Lord who had told them to, after fishing all night and catching nothing, to relaunch out into the deep and drop their nets. And after that, they obeyed that command. Remember, first Peter said, oh, Lord, we've been out all night and we didn't catch a thing. How do you know about fishing? We're the fishermen. You're a carpenter. Oh, well, but we'll do it anyway. And when they did, so many fish, the nets broke, and the, and the ship started to sink. So they might have suspected this, you know, reminded them a lot of that previous miracle. Something was strangely, strangely similar. And by the way, in that first miracle, who was in the boat with them? Jesus was in the boat with them. This miracle, he's on the shore. But anyway, something similar. So they instantly obeyed the command and they cast the net out onto the right side of the boat and received exceeding abundantly good on his promise, and ye shall find. For their net was so full of a multitude of fish, it tells us, that they couldn't even draw it up into the boat. It was so heavy, it says they couldn't draw it up. They couldn't pull the net into the boat. Now John, again referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that doesn't mean that he was saying Jesus loved him more than the others. It merely means he couldn't get over the fact that Jesus loved him. John, with characteristic perception and sensitiveness, was convinced. Because of that miraculous, miraculous catch, that is what convinced him of the identity of the stranger on the shore. And so he's the first to say, it is the Lord. Who does he say that to? Peter, you see how close John and Peter are always together so many times. So he says to Peter, it's the Lord. And what probably Peter suspected was then confirmed. Because he was probably thinking a lot like the Lord himself. So that's confirmed. So then with his characteristic impulsiveness, he girds himself with his fisherman's coat and jumps into the water and wades to the shore. Now I say he wades to the shore. And you're probably all thinking of Peter swimming to the shore. But you don't put on a heavy fisherman's coat to swim because that adds the extra weight, you know, the wet weight of the coat. He waded to the shore. There's only a football field out from the shore. The shore there would be shallow. He walks to the shore, okay? Get that picture in your mind instead of the swimming. Not that that's important. But also, the word naked, heard some of you giggle a little bit. That's not really nude naked. Okay? Um, they were required, it was demanded for decency's sake. Remember, this is Jewish territory. And it was demanded that they wear an undergarment which was called a subligarculum. So he had that on. You know, when they were pulling nets in, they're getting wet. They took their fisherman's coat off and they just had their undergarment on. But he wasn't nude naked, all right? So the normal response of Peter instant action isn't that exactly what we would expect from him yep doesn't surprise us one bit wasn't he the first one remember to jump out of the boat and walk on the water for a little while so this doesn't surprise us he's doing it again and we're almost half amused about it because you know some things just never change do they and that's why we love him that's why we love peter because he so loved the lord you know he always wanted to be where the lord was But what I want to do here for the next few moments is something that is different. Something maybe you've never really heard this passage taught this way before in churches or Sunday school classes or wherever. I want to look at Peter's action here from a different perspective. I want to look at his action from the Lord's point of view there on the shore. And then I want us to look at his action from the other six disciples' point of view those who were left with the task of bringing in the two boats and dragging the heavy net full of fish to the shore. First of all, let's begin by looking at the Lord's point of view. Do you think that Jesus was impressed with Peter walking ahead of the others to reach him first? Do you think that he thought to himself, Oh, well, that's just Peter for you. Ha ha, chuckle, chuckle. Do you think he was amused? Or was Peter's action to Jesus just another indication of a special need in this man that he doesn't yet realize he has? Is that need perhaps the need to always be first, the first, the best, the one who gets the attention, the one who always tries to prove to the Lord that he loves him the most, that he's the most daring, that he's the most adventurous because he loves him the most. Remember when Peter took out his little dagger and cut off an ear? Do you think when Peter did that that he was thinking about the danger he was putting the other disciples in? Do you think here he's thinking of the others when he jumps into the water and leaves the others behind? So let's look at Peter's action from the other men's vantage point. Their tired hands are full of holding on to a very heavy, wet, and full net. And they are working hard to get the boats to the shore. So you know, some of them are having to paddle while some of them are trying to hold on to the net so that they won't lose the great catch. So what do you think they think when Peter drops his part of the work and jumps out of the boat? Do you think they're thinking how wonderful it is that Peter loves the Lord like that? Hmm. (laughs) Do you think that they are thinking, wow, what a great spiritual leader he is? (laughs) And he's uh, proving himself to be a leader by his actions. Is that what you think these guys were thinking? If you do think that's what they were thinking, we haven't learned enough about the human nature of these men do you remember what they were always arguing about? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You know, two guys even sent their mother to ask for the, the right and left seats when the Lord came into his kingdom. So, and, and how do you think these guys felt on the night before the Lord's crucifixion when Peter had immediately agreed with Jesus that all the other guys would scatter from him, but not me, Lord? How do you think that they felt that night? Hmm, not too good. And so there goes Peter, always out in front of everybody and everything. All And also forgetting about the others and his own leadership responsibilities. Is a leader responsible for others? Yes, a leader has more responsibilities. There's no doubt whatsoever that Peter was a natural-born leader. And there's no doubt whatsoever that Jesus chose him to a leadership position. But there is a serious distinction between the world's type of a leader and a Christian leader. A Christian leader is to be the servant of all. Peter, again, here, does the spectacular. But in doing so, he's forgotten the boats, he's forgotten the nets, he's forgotten the great and the extra labor that his absence means for the others. Do you think a godly Christian leader is the one who should always be out there in front doing the spectacular and the grandiose things to display his superior love for the Lord while leaving the others to do the cleanup? And the others to think of themselves as inferior because they're in the background and, well, how can I follow that act, you know? I want to tell you something, It's very important what I'm going to say in the next sentence. Those men, those other six men in that boat were showing their love for Jesus just as much, if not more than Peter by bringing in the Lord's miraculous catch of fish. Did you get that? Peter's splash in the water was sort of parallel to his words the night before the crucifixion not me Lord all these guys yeah I can see them deserting you but not me I'm different you know he's always drawing a contrast between himself and the others like he does actually at the end of John 21 he does it again when Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die what does Peter do turns around looks at John and says what about him (laughs) <laughs> He's always contrasting contrasting himself. And when he had done that, not me, Lord, thing, um, the response of the Lord was his warning to Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. And then he went on and he said that Peter would actually stoop lower than any of the others. Pride goeth before a fall. This splash response right here now is going to call for two serious follow-up conversations that the Lord has with Peter. And those conversations begin with Jesus' question to Peter in verse 15. And what is it? Simon, and you know what? Jesus gave Simon a new name. Remember, he changed his name to Peter. Rock. So whenever Jesus calls Peter Simon, that's his old nature name. That's not good. (laughs) And he says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these others? You think you love me more than the others? That's how it's going to begin. We'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. The Lord had chosen Peter to be a leader, but a leader needs to know how to do things in such a way that others are not left looking less zealous and inferior, less important. Wouldn't it have been more? of a display of true leadership. If Peter had said, Hey guys, look, John, John, pat him on the back, perceptive, sensitive John has just realized it's the Lord. You know, give a little credit to John, right? He's just realized it's the Lord. Let's hurry up together and get this great catch of fish to the Lord. What a spectacular, marvelous thing he has wrought here, this miracle. Here, Didymus, move over. Let me help you row to shore. Wouldn't that have been more of a display of godly leadership? That's the kind of leadership, that differs from uh, leadership that leaves everybody else holding the net and wondering what they're supposed to do to show the Lord that they love him too. What if everybody had jumped in the water like Peter? (laughs) If everyone had followed Peter's act, then the net full of fish would have sunk to the bottom of the sea and the fish would have been lost. Well, when the other six disciples did reach the shore, which wouldn't have taken them too long um, because they'd only been 100 yards out into the water, they saw that Jesus had made a fire of coals. Now, what does that fire of coals? That's exactly the same word that was used A few chapters earlier, remember when Peter was standing warming his hands at a fire of coals, and that was the night of night of the Lord's arrest, and that's when he denied the Lord three times. This is the next time that that same word is used. All of this is to maybe remind Peter of things, okay? So there's a fire of coals, and other fish are frying on the fire. Now, these are not the fish they just brought in. These are other fish. What else is there? Bread. Bread is there. Uh, These things, the fire, the fish, and the bread, how do you think they got there? Did Jesus make a post-resurrection appearance to unbelievers to purchase these things? Or do you think he just created them? Was he able to feed many, many people with just a few things? Do you think he created, well, he did. He created the whole world with just his word. He could have created these fish and the bread, you know, because he's God. And they likely were created by him here. Um, he is able to spread a feast for his own by his own now before they sat down to eat however he gives another command this is the second command in this uh, scene he says bring of the fish this is verse 10 bring of the fish which ye have now caught and what do we see happens again oh my Big, burly Peter, instead of grabbing the other guys and saying, come on, guys, he does it all over again. He ran to the edge of the, the beach there and single-handedly dragged the net to where the Lord was. Again, you know, displaying how, how superior he is, kind of showing off. Now, this does tell us something about how big this man was. Peter was a big, strong man. Remember all of them together could not haul up the net into the boat. But Peter single-handedly drags this, these 153 fish. And I've eaten the fish on the Sea of Galilee, and they're about that big, you know, average. 153 of them, that's a lot of weight. And he single-handedly drags the net to where the Lord is. And the net doesn't break. The net didn't break in the water, the net didn't break on the land. And here is where John specifically tells us the exact number of fish. How many? 153. The net didn't break, so what does that mean? It means that not a single fish was lost. In the Lord's first miraculous catch of fish, Luke 5, the nets did break. And therefore, what does that mean? It means some of the fish slipped away. Some of them went out from the net, and there was no specific count of the fish either. Um, Now, there has been a lot of speculation about what the number 153 means, and some of the speculation is just out there. It's just so weird, but I really think that the spiritual significance seems to be in the count, not in the number. In other words, what is important is that the exact number was known. Well, <clears throat> we'll get back to that in a minute, but there was one more command given by the Lord. How many commands in this scene? Three. Three commands given to the Lord by the Lord. Here's the third one. Come and dine. And when they did, he was the host and he served them. When was the last time he served as a host and served them? Right, at the Passover supper. And remember what he had taught them? A very important lesson that night about humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up about leaders will be servants. What had he done that night? He had washed their feet. And again, I think this is all trying to remind all of them of the importance of being servants. So the three commands in this scene, let's review what they were. Cast the net. Cast the net. Labor. Bring the fish. Results. Come and dine. Reward. Isn't that neat? Cast the net. Labor. Bring the fish. Results. Come and dine. Reward. Reward. Do you think that maybe somehow all of this is meaningful? Isn't everything in the scripture? I mean, we have the true account of what happened, but behind it, there's spiritual significance. As I've said repeatedly this morning, this is, was the Lord's seventh post-resurrection appearance, and it involved seven disciples in the boat. Now, the number seven in the scripture speaks of completion and perfection. This was the completion of the Lord's miracle ministry to his men, and it had been absolutely perfect. But seven also is symbolic of the church. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the church is pictured by the seven first century local church history, I should say, is pictured (coughs) by the seven first century, first century local churches in Asia Minor, which is nowadays Turkey. And also in Revelation 1, the church is represented by the seven golden candlesticks. <coughs> well, the seven disciples here picture the task of the church to be fishers of men, as we've already stated. We are called by the Lord in this church age to be fishers of men. We are to cast the gospel net out into the sea of this world. You know, in Scripture, the land speaks of Israel, the sea speaks of the world. (coughs) And we're to pull souls with that gospel net, we're to pull souls out of the world and bring them to Jesus on the safety of the shore. You see, unlike the other fish miracle in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus was with his disciples in the boat, where is he now? He's not with them in the boat. He's on the shore directing and guiding and empowering them just as he does today for us in the church age from the shores of heaven. (laughs) And the morning breakfast that he invited them to, um, and by the way, the word dine in the Greek literally means to break fast. That's where we get breakfast. They broke their fast of not eating all night, (laughs) okay? So he invited them to a morning breakfast. That's a picture <coughs> of the heavenly provision that his servants will enjoy. Thank you. <coughs> once we meet, uh, once we reach the shores of heaven, <coughs> and what are we going to be invited to attend when we reach the shores of heaven by the Lord Himself? <coughs> the marriage supper of the Lamb. I wish I could get you up here to finish this lesson. (laughs) So a lot, you know, a large portion of our future satisfaction and the reward of the Christian (coughs) is going to consist in beholding the fruit of our combined labors. We're all dragnet fishermen. And part of our reward in heaven is going to be seeing the number of souls that were brought into the kingdom through our instrumentality. The gospel net (coughs) will be brought safely, unbroken, to the shore, and not one fish will be lost. Remember what the Lord said in his high priestly prayer of John 17? To his father, he said, Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. The 153 fish Tell us that the Lord knows exactly how many souls the Father has given to him. And when at last that net is full and it is brought in to the shores of heaven, every single one of his own will be there. That is security. The gospel net has no holes in it. The word of God has no holes in it. Well, what about the first miracle? Well, the Lord was with them. The gospel was not complete because he had not died, been buried, and resurrected. He had told them that there would be, you know, wheat and tares. And that it tells us in 1 John two nineteen that some went out from us because they were not of us. They slipped away. There was terror in, in, in the net. It wasn't complete. And there were four. There were only four disciples in that miracle. Four speaks of the number of the land, Israel. That was still, he was, you know, working with Israel. We know much of Israel went out, didn't they? So there's a lot of significance in that. And I'm very, very sorry for my coughing spell. (laughs) Thank you for your patience, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the love of your people, for your word. I can see it on their faces. And thank you for the word. Thank you for calling us to be fishers of men. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to cast out our nets into the sea of this world. And may we be fruitful, Lord. Enable us. We know apart from you we can do nothing, but enable us to be competent, good fishers of men. And one day, Lord, in your presence at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will all rejoice together. And what a day that will be. We love you now. We ask that you go with every woman. Use her this week to be your salt and light and bring us back safely next week. Before we pray in your name. Amen.